0: Over 50 years after humans first landed on the moon, it's still pretty difficult and expensive to get anything into orbit. But imagine if there were a more affordable way to give scientists and entrepreneurs access to space. We could develop more efficient agriculture to feed people more affordably and sustainably, or more closely monitor the
1: evolution of dangerous storm patterns to save lives. The company Astra is on a mission to do just that, by creating a lower cost platform that offers smaller more frequent launches to get satellites into space we sat down with astra co-founder and ceo chris kemp to learn more about how his teams collaborate on the immense technical challenges involved and how design is playing an increasingly important role as traditional launch control rooms become more automated
0: chris has an impressive background from founding three companies to being the cto of nasa And we dive into the arc of his career, the lessons he's
1: learned in
0: leading people, and how he communicates mission and vision to his teams.
1: It's all systems go as we get ready to explore the future of Earth from space with Chris Kemp. Thanks for listening. Chris Kemp, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And Chris, you've got a really interesting trajectory of your career, and forgive the aerospace terminology, but you started in the sort of startup space, chief architect at Classmates, and then you're founder of your own startup called Escapia in the early 2000s. And then there was this leap over to NASA and being a director of BizDev. Maybe we could start there. Talk about how you kind of went from the startup world to NASA. A couple of my
2: friends that were friends of mine since I was an undergrad were really passionate about space and they have been for the past 20 years or so gathering. We've we've all found a a really interesting place on the earth of human significance. And we would talk about what we've accomplished in the previous year, what we want to accomplish in the next year in the context of what we want to accomplish in our lifetime. And one year in 2005, when I was at Escapia, we were in Washington, DC, and I met a really interesting gentleman there and Adams Morgan at our New Year event. And he was telling me stories about how when he ran the Space Force, this and, you know, Donald Rumsfeld that. And, you know, one of the things he was talking about is this new NASA center that he was going to be taking over. And that all sounded very fantastical to me. So later that year, about six months later, I sent a note to my friend who's Will Marshall at Planet, the founder and CEO there. And I said, hey, did this Air Force general ever get his NASA center? And he asked me, well, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, well, I'm in Boston. I think I'm heading back up to Seattle. And he said, well, can you come to Los Angeles? And I changed my flight because, you know, who could resist an invitation like that? And I ended up unnecessarily renting a car at the Los Angeles airport because it was actually the Los Angeles Hilton that the International Space Development Conference was happening. And the keynote speaker was that general. And that general was Pete Warden, who would later become the director of NASA Ames Research Center. And at the conference, I sat next to him at the luncheon table. And after his speech, he had a cold and he was coughing and cackling, and he didn't want to get on an airplane. So he said, "Who has a rental car?" And I had a rental car, so I have a rental car. And he goes, "Come on, let's go. We're driving up to Ames." And I ended up in a car alone with Pete for hours driving up the California One Coastal Highway, and Robbie and Will and other folks all drove up. And I ended up spending a couple of days out there, just getting an opportunity to tour NASA and. Pete said, well, you should come down and work with space. And I said, well, I'm running a travel company. He goes, you know, that's bullshit. Space travel is better than travel. And, you know, so it was kind of his version of the sugar water talk. And I ended up going back up to Seattle and I found someone to run the company up there. And I moved to the Bay Area and we all got a house together in Cupertino. And we started working for NASA Ames Research Center.
0: It seems like the beginning of your career, like you went from college to leadership very quickly. You found yourself in leadership roles. Could you talk to us a little bit about like, that transition from being a college student to being a leader? And if you could look at yourself somewhat objectively, like <laughs> what was it that gets you into that position so quickly? Well, I like to build things.
2: And when I was in college, actually, my sophomore year, had an opportunity to join Silicon Graphics, which was a company that I admired growing up because they built the software and the computers that brought Jurassic World and movies like that to life. I always kind of was passionate about using computers to create magic, and, and I think that was kind of their thing. So I had the opportunity to work there. When I was there, I saw these opportunities to invent things, and I convinced a colleague of mine at SGI to leave. And we started a company. He was even nerdier than I am, so he was obviously the CTO, and that made me the CEO. And so I never really went back. i bring teams of people together, and I think one of the hacks in life is just start out as a CEO and build things and, you know, you have more opportunity to design and architect and recruit and build pretty much everything. So that was my first lesson out of college was start at the top.
1: Chris, how have you learned, you know, as obviously being a CEO of a startup when you're two people or a handful of people, but then if you look at your career, your director of biz dev is NASA, then your CIO and then your CTO. And obviously that's a much larger organization. So what are, what are some of the things that you learned from, Starting with small teams to running larger organizations.
2: I think that small teams are really what get things done. When I think of a big team, I think of teams of teams and potentially teams of teams of teams. And so I always think of every team as a startup because being involved in startups at an early age, I knew that once you get beyond about five people on a team, the team kind of builds its own internal infrastructure and it becomes more complicated to manage. If you're not explicit about the relationships between the teams so even at nasa we would kind of think about there's a team working on this and a team working on that and it was at nasa i first started to use scrum as a a way to keep track of the work that needs to be done by a team and the things that the team might be blocked by and the idea of having a daily stand-up it's something that i've done in every company including astro we have a daily stand-up where every program reports back to me and the rest of the management team every day. And if anybody's blocked an entire company, I hear about it and we unblock them. And my management team itself runs a Scrum. This is something that typically most companies only do for software projects. And it's rare that it's adopted throughout the entire organization, but it allows us to run really fast and people don't get frustrated because we can make sure that nothing's holding people back.
0: A big part of being in a leadership role, especially in the type of work that you're doing, is presenting to large groups of people, a vision for where you're going, what you're trying to do. And presumably that's also part of fundraising process and not just presenting that vision internally, but also externally. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you do that, how maybe people you've worked with in the past have done that effectively? I think that you have to begin with
2: something that matters. I think one of the things I learned from some incredible friends and an incredibly accomplished people that I've had the good fortune to run into over the years is it takes the same amount of time to do something easy as it takes to do something hard. And same amount of hours in the day, same amount of days in the week. So why not do something hard? It doesn't take any more time. And also do something that's meaningful. So early in my career, when I was in university and I started a, you know, Escapia, I couldn't find a beach house. And so that was frustrating. So I started a company. Well, the same amount of time that it takes to build a company to help people find beach houses, I can build a space company, right? And so why not be really intentional about how you spend your time? And so that's kind of lesson one. And the lesson two is, if there's something important that you're trying to do, the story behind it and being able to get people excited about why you're doing it and why it's important and being able to express that really allows you to connect with people and bring them into your orbit. And the more you're able to bring great people into your orbit, the more you're able to accomplish. And so those are the
0: two lessons I've learned. Did you have a moment you referenced in your story, the drive up Highway 1 with General says, you know, what you're doing is bullshit. Here's a bigger <laughs> version of what could happen. Did you have a moment in your life where you felt like, what am I doing? Like, Is there something bigger and more important to me that I want to devote my life's energy towards?
2: Yeah, I did. And I, I remember the moment, you know, I remember the sun was setting We're up just driving along the coast. And Pete was talking about how at NASA Ames, they had this confluence of biotechnology, information technology, and nanotechnology that would probably completely change the way people thought about settling the solar system. And if you think about having to put big people meat bags on rockets and keeping them alive in, in a pretty dangerous and inhospitable environment, that's hard, right? So why not take a completely different approach and go send a microorganism that's been genetically engineered to take whatever resources are on another planet and begin to prepare it for life and then send life that way and then have life emerge and think about it in probably much more the same way that it actually occurred versus you know our kind of humanistic way of thinking about, oh, we got to go plant flags and send people to places. And so this vision of settling the solar system, I remember the moment I said, Pete, you're, it's, it's kind of like you're building an arc, you know? <laughs> it's Pete's arc. But I was referring to Ames Research Center, which is what they called NASA ARC. So anyway, it was, a, it was a very interesting conversation and it, and it certainly caused me to question how I was spending my time. And at the end of the day, it's what allowed me to just hand my company to someone else and come down and just jump right in. I actually worked without pay for a couple months as I figured out the role and, and what I wanted to do.
1: This critique of Silicon Valley's focus right now, I think around things like building social networking apps or the next food delivery app versus entrepreneurs like Elon Musk or yourself who have these visions that are seem much more long-term and focused on hard problems. Do you think the culture in Silicon Valley is starting to shift a little bit or is it just we just don't hear as much about the companies that are working on really hard problems?
2: I wouldn't take anything away from figuring out how to, take tens of millions of cars and take random people and put them in them and figure out how to get them to the right place at the right time at the right price to solve a problem like uber i mean it certainly makes it easier when you have the infrastructure in place right so i remember when i was a classmate we talked about location-based services and it was one of these buzzwords that just didn't mean anything and i remember we had teams of people working on what's the classmate's location-based service strategy and you know what It was just too early. Like the infrastructure didn't exist to allow applications like Uber to be built at the time. Mobile phones, I remember I had a mobile phone that had a black and white screen, and you know, there's just we didn't have the foundation, right? And so throughout my career, one of the threads is platforms. I like to build platforms. And Escapia was a platform for reservations for vacation homes. At NASA I built OpenStack, which is a platform that allows data centers to be Kind of treated like logical services, and it's like to a data center what Linux was to a personal computer. And at, at Astro, we're building a platform. You know, we're, we're allowing space to be a place where people can imagine things and build services that improve life on Earth. Our vision is a healthier, more connected planet. And we're not going to accomplish that all on our own. That's a hard problem to solve. But if there are hundreds, then thousands of companies that can be powered and lifted up by this platform, then we're in a position to really make a bigger impact.
0: We wanna jump into what you're doing at Astra, but first I'm curious if we go back to NASA and you rose up to CIO and then ultimately CTO, which seems like CTO of NASA is a pretty amazing role that a lot of people would kill for. And you walked away from that to start Astra. What was that inflection point? Why walk away from what was happening at NASA to start something from scratch?
2: There was a step in between because I took the platform that I had built at NASA and we tried to turn it into a commercial product. And uh, it's a great story, actually. I, you know, with OpenStack really starting to make an impact, we had the team that I had built at NASA got recruited away, that was frustrating. And then I had people always approaching me, hey, do you want to start a company? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? You know, finally, it got to the point where so many people had been drawn away from the team that I had built. I said, well, it's probably time for me to go build something again. So I talked to John Doerr at Kleiner Perkins and was able to bring some really incredible investors and some incredible people together. You know, Andy Bechtelsheim, who founded Sun Microsystems, later Arista, wrote the first check. I think he was the first check in Google and Ram Sharam and Andy Sheridan, all were people that I was just really inspired by, frankly. And they all invested. They did a seed investment and that allowed me to leave NASA and build something again. And so I guess I had the in my view, the best investors and and the best team that I could kind of build coming out of that experience at NASA. And that allowed us to go build Nebula, which unfortunately, I learned a lesson there as well. And I relive that lesson because I teach a class at Stanford now where I talk about basically failure and a pretty good example of where something that everybody thought would succeed didn't succeed because the market really wasn't what we thought it was. And the product didn't fit into the market the way we thought it would. And I think that allowed me to really see the space industry kind of through a very similar light. You know, we were building an appliance for Dell and HP and Cisco and IBM to go and build a cloud. Well, no one wanted to build clouds. We wanted to consume them as a service from Amazon or from Google or from Microsoft. And so this massive shift has caused basically all computer companies to be flat, like if you look at the stocks of Dell, Cisco, HP, IBM, VMware, like these are all companies that have not created a lot of value in the last five years. If you look at a company like Amazon and Amazon Web Services, this is probably the fastest growing business unit in corporate history. And it's because it's a completely vertically integrated platform. When we were selling Nebula to Oracle, I realized that I needed to do something else because Amazon was hiring chip designers and Google was hiring people to build better switches, better servers, better CPUs than anything Dell, HP, Cisco would ever build. And they were operating them at a scale that no enterprise would be able to afford to build out. And so the game had changed. And I think the game's changing in space too. I think that the idea that a company can start up and build a satellite from scratch is kind of like Steve Wozniak soldering chips onto a board in 1970. It's like the Homebrew Satellite Club. We don't need to solve these problems again and again. I mean, what the space industry needs is the equivalent of an Apple to come in and build a platform and then it's really about the apps that you're building and it's about being able to take like a plug and play approach to peripherals. So if you want to put a camera in space, great, plug it in. You got a USB port. It's about making the optimization around a platform versus around a rocket or a satellite form factor. And so a lot of things that I think people in this industry don't see I can see pretty clearly because it's just a different lens on the same problem.
1: Chris, just given your time at NASA and now at your own space company, obviously historically NASA had a huge role in our exploration of space and in the beginnings of the commercialization of space, and now it seems to be relying more on these public-private partnerships. Do you see that as sort of the future going forward? Do you see you know an evolution in the role of NASA? Do you see them coming back with innovation again? What's your sort of overall view of that relationship? I think NASA was one of the most
2: inspiring places in the world to work. Some of the projects that NASA has the opportunity to tackle were dazzled with from time to time. You know, like there's a helicopter on Mars that's about to take off. That is something that I'm not doing it. Jeff Bezos isn't doing it. Elon Musk isn't doing it. It's stuff that's just so hard that it requires the focus and the dedication, not for commercial value, but for the kind of intrinsic scientific value to humanity that only the resources that a nation state like program like that can marshal. And so I think what NASA should continue to do is stay focused on the hard things and stay focused on the things for which there is no commercial opportunity. Fortunately, getting things off of earth is becoming a solved problem. And so NASA shouldn't be building rockets. NASA should be focused on putting things on rockets and making sure those rockets are going to places where there's no commercial market But there's incredible inspiration to our kids, incredible value to humanity if we can do the things and see the things and understand the things that no one's going to do unless it's NASA, right? So I think NASA plays an incredibly important role. It is an evolving role as space, especially space around Earth, becomes a new commercial area of human economic activity. I think you don't need NASA getting things to space anymore, at least low Earth orbit for sure.
0: Talk to us about the uh, creative process at Astra. There are the limitations of scale and doing things kind of in a larger platform. There are the limitations of physical hardware and so forth. But ultimately, you and your colleagues bring this software thinking to hardware that is traditionally something that takes a very long time to do, is very resource-intensive, and you're looking at that in a different way. So how does the creative process work at Astra?
2: One of the things that is Really unique about space is the complexity of the systems that you build and how there's a fractal like quality to them where everything is related in some complex, often not quite clear, but very deterministic way to everything else. And so I think the opportunity is to allow the synthesis of those real constraints. You know, if in kind of general terms, like if you want to carry more payload, well, you need more thrust. And if you need more thrust, you might need more fuel or you might need more efficiency. If you need more fuel, you got to move more fuel in the engines. The engines have to be larger. Therefore, they weigh more. Therefore, you need more thrust. And so there's this complexity. The complexity exists at every node, right? So there's complexity within a pump, within an engine, within a stage, within a rocket, within the overall launch system, within the overall space system that you're building and everything relates to everything else. And so if you're trying to build a constellation, that provides a certain amount of bandwidth to a certain number of users and distributed in a certain kind of fashion. Well, then you need a certain number of satellites and a certain number of orbital planes at a certain altitude that have a certain amount of power, you know, assuming that uh, the antennas operate at a certain efficiency, have a certain aperture with a certain so, so everything's all connected, right? And so you begin to appreciate the need to take a group of people and have them understand either all of that or some of that as appropriate so that they can make decisions. And then what you want is you want to add creativity to it. Everything can't just be solved by software. And so you need humans with the creativity, bringing creative solutions to problems. And so in order to do that, you need to think about, well, how do you present information? So if I'm an engineer and all I care about is making a better rocket, well, what if I'm trying to make a hundred thousand of those rockets? Well, I care about how much labor goes into building them. If I'm trying to build a business that has, profit margins, I care about how much it costs to potentially assemble the thing. Where are my materials coming for? What is my lead time on certain parts? And so to some degree, it all comes down to having people have the right information so that they can design the thing. And so I see myself as an architect, right? So I, I'm designing a company that can take this in stages where phase one is, well, we've got to make a rocket that can launch every month that can get this much payload. And then the next stage is, well, we've gotta put a satellite on it, and then we've gotta make more of them. And then we've gotta and so with each of these steps, you add more instrumentation, and then you provide better tools for your teams to have the insights that they need to offer more creative solutions as you continue to iterate. And so the fundamental principles are iteration. If you spend 25 years making a rocket like NASA does, well, you don't have the opportunity for there to be a lot of learning, right? Because your whole team works on something and then 25 years they learn, did we build the right thing? Maybe SpaceX built it faster. They probably did. And so to some degree, what you want is you want more iterations and you want more information so that you can learn faster. And so one of my favorite sayings is the only truly sustainable competitive advantage is learning faster than your competitors. So the question is, how do you learn faster? And one answer is, well, you have the ability to bring all the information together faster you iterate more and you present the information to the right people at the right time and then those people again it's teams of teams of teams of teams like as the company gets bigger you end up having to design how the communication pathways work because if one team makes a change it affects every other team and so there's a fractal like combinatorially complex engineering challenge that everybody's collaboratively tackling right so i think that is kind of the secret sauce you know everybody has a different approach elon has an approach And, you know, it works for him and his companies and how they're structured and how they're managed. I have a different approach. The question is, is which of these designs will more successfully allow you to learn faster and then, as a result, improve your products faster? And then, as a result, build better services that delight more people faster and then ultimately win, right? Because you've got better mousetraps.
0: Eli and I have seen a pattern with a lot of leaders that what you've just described on an organizational level, they apply on a personal level, that they learn faster than their peers. Do you think about that? Because given your background, you didn't have a space background as far as I can tell. So presumably you've had a pretty steep learning curve for some time, but you got past that. How do you keep up personally and learn faster than everybody else so your company can be competitive but also so you can continue to deliver in your capacity as a ceo
2: it's primarily about knowing your weaknesses and making it a priority to bring people in to kind of fill those gaps right because if you don't acknowledge your weaknesses then you're not even going to make an effort to try to bring people in and so it's it's really critical that you understand your strengths you spend your time where your strengths are are and then you you make sure your weaknesses don't trip you up and largely you can do that by bringing people in that trusts you that you trust and that have your back otherwise they exploit your weaknesses so that's one piece of it i think the other piece of it is after starting a few companies you start to appreciate that the company itself is an organism and its dna and its structure involves the way it's put together and there's almost no company on earth that has a very simple structure anymore it's not like you have shareholders, they have one class of stock, they have a board, they can elect the board, they can toss the board out. They have, As you bring companies together, you have different classes of stock, and those classes of stock have protective provisions, and you have voting agreements. So to some degree, like the company itself, you have to keep the company and how it's structured. Every single document that you sign with every investor, you have to keep that in your instruction set. So you know exactly what you can do and not do to make sure that you appropriately balance how the company is managed and controlled and so as a result for example astra adam and i have super voting shares much like larry and sergey and mark had at facebook more or less everything structurally that we can possibly have to control the company and we've maintained overwhelming control of the company even as we go public we'll have another class structure that allows us to basically manage the company as we as founders want to manage the company and shareholders have to embrace that and if they don't they don't they don't have to invest in the company As a public company, we're now putting all that out there and we're saying, hey, this is our company. It's a founder-led company. And it's not my intent to kind of allow a bunch of investors to run the show here. I mean, we we have a thing we're trying to do and and we're going to build a great company. And hopefully there's a lot of value that investors ascribe to what we're building here. This has been a pretty exciting transition for us as we go public through this process. We never even named the company, by the way, for three years. So we we had a company that we elected to not name. (laughs) So we went from being kind of an unnamed company to a public company, pretty much faster than I've ever heard of any
0: company ever doing. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash design better. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U P L I F T. Desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5.
1: Earlier, Chris, you were speaking about collaboration, and I'm curious how you think about optimizing collaboration and communication across different teams, which might have different expertise or different sort of technical languages. And are there any sort of tactics you use? You mentioned this of the Scrum framework, but are there, are there any tactics you use to optimize collaboration and communication? What
2: we're trying to be is a customer-obsessed, product-led company, and that doesn't exist in the aerospace industry. If you think about how does aerospace do product management, well, NASA says they want a space shuttle, and then the lowest bidder gets the contract, but NASA's doing the product management. And frankly, whoever wins that contract has 50 years to deliver on it, typically billions of dollars over budget and a decade behind schedule. That's not good. I mean, what if Amazon or Google or Apple manage products like that? So I think what we've got to do is we've got to bring in a new way of operating. And it's not familiar to the engineers that we've hired from other aerospace companies. And it's bringing together the best ways of thinking about product design into aerospace. So we're putting product leaders at the heart of the company. So there's a chief product officer and there's Product managers of the things we're creating. And they're not just concerned with the best, highest performance engineering solution. They're concerned with the value that we're creating for our mission, which is to improve life on Earth from space, and what that does for the customers that are helping us accomplish that vision. So, our customers, for example, would always want us to have the rocket cost half as much than to have 10% more performance, right? Because they can just buy two rockets. So, to some degree, what if a FedEx truck pulls up to your house and it has a 800 horsepower engine and it can go zero to 60 in a second. And you're like, well, that sounds cool. Well, it's not cool if there's only five of them in the world and it comes to your neighborhood once a year. right? so that's not solving the problem for the customers. What the customers actually want is thousands of cheap FedEx trucks that are delivering packages twice a day to your house. Well, you can't have that if you make it out of carbon fiber and you build a giant truck that you know has unnecessarily extreme performance requirements. So we're just thinking about the big picture. We're thinking about what do our customers need in order to build the kinds of applications. So it's like Apple thinks about, well, what do the app store developers need? They're a key part of the ecosystem. So product management forces you to think about who are my customers, the rocket, our customers, our internal launch services organizations, you know, and, and to some degree, like their customer is potentially the space operations group where we start to operate constellations of satellites and if those satellites need to get bigger, well, the product manager of the rocket needs to start figuring out how to make a bigger rocket, as an example. We think about products and we think about product releases as a closely coupled engineering constrained problem to solve. And I'm, I'm really excited to start putting AI and as we build kind of the three dimensional chessboard here, I think that what you have on one hand is you have systems engineers who are all about constraints, you have product managers who are all about creativity and ideas, and then you have an AI. It's just throwing things out there that no one might expect because it's another way of thinking about inspecting all the data that no human could ever inspect to derive a conclusion. And then if the AI is wrong, then you say, well, why is it wrong? Well, because it's a constraint that we hadn't put in the system. Okay, well, let's add that constraint. And then you've now added that constraint so that the human creative actor... So it's, I think it's a three-way chess game between creatives, engineers, and an AI. You could call it an engineering linear optimization network.
0: Many of our listeners have a pretty extensive background in software and specifically in design. So the design thinking process, which is really a problem-solving process, is core to the way that they see the world and the way that they operate professionally. How might people with this sort of background find their way into this really compelling new space of space? What we've got to do is we've got to
2: bring people that think this way into this area, because this isn't a traditional aerospace environment where you move your test piece once every 25 years, right? This is an opportunity where every new idea could make it onto a satellite or a launch vehicle on the next release, which would be in a few months or a year. And so it kind of provides a whole new area of opportunity for people that are excited to make a contribution in this area that never existed before. Even our competitors like Rocket Lab, I mean, it, they worked on one rocket for over a decade. So if you ship your product every decade versus every year, that's 10 opportunities to try something and fail or try something and learn. And that allows us to, I think, play a completely different game.
1: When you think about like the direction that things like cars and Elon's taking, obviously Tesla, in the direction of a certain experience as far as like the user experience and simplifying the controls... How do you feel that that might translate into designing UI, UX for space, for the controls for you know, whether they're remote or within a space vehicle? Obviously, there's different constraints around redundancy and things like that. But is that knowledge of creating a simplified, like human-relatable experience going to shift the way we design products for space? I think absolutely.
2: If you look already at how we're thinking about design, you know, the rocket is a, an autonomous robot. So what are people doing in a control room, really? It's not like every single one of those consoles, the information that they're seeing, they're acting on in any way kind of influencing the outcome. And so I look at this and I say, well, why can't a rocket have a pilot and a co Why do you need a control room in the traditional sense? I've often gone back and you can actually listen to all of the audio from all of the consoles from the Apollo missions. If you look at what all of those people are doing, they're all effectively just doing things that now software can do better, right? Faster, more consistently, without emotion. And like when you start your car, you don't have 15 people with control, battery system, go, you know, telemetry system, go, camera system, go. Yes, all that data exists, but there's a computer in your car and, you know, you press a button and it turns on and you drive away. And so to some degree, that's how we think about rockets. Let's think about how we can use A modern approach if a human needs to do something the question is from a human factors perspective well what information do they need to do the thing that only the human can do and you always want to ask yourself is a human the best person to do that and most cases the answer is actually no especially when something's traveling twenty-three thousand miles an hour and your response time in a few milliseconds the thing's already traveled forever and you know whatever problem you could have potentially solved the time that you can react and then the reaction can travel via RF back to the rocket is, you know, just let the software on the rocket do the thing. So I I think you're absolutely right. I think what we'll see is we'll see our ability to take the 30 people to 15 people to five people that can deploy an entire spaceport in five days to two people. And just because you gotta have somebody that meets the airplane and, and unloads the containers. And so the idea is let's really continue to see how far we can go with this and what optimizations
0: you can drive. As we start to optimize the whole platform for going to space, what do you see happening in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? What's possible as space becomes more accessible to humanity?
2: 50 years ago, when the early Apollo missions were starting to first orbit the moon and then we landed on the moon and there was this absolutely incredible photo that was taken by mistake by, I believe, Bill Enders, an astronaut. NASA would always have checklists, you know, do this, do this, do this. And there was something that was never on the checklist, which was this to look behind in the window and see the earth and to take your little Hasselblad and take a picture of that, because that became the most famous picture in history. That was the most reprinted. That was the first time earth had ever been photographed in full. And when that image came back, it sparked a whole movement. It's like, wow, the earth is this beautiful, fragile blue marble. And you can now see these images of how everybody who's ever lived and died, every civilization, every everyone has lived in this little thin blue line right above this fragile blue marble. And I look at this planet now and we're doing things to the atmosphere. We're doing things that perhaps have nothing to do with what we're doing or are impacting the environment in this fragile environment. And as I can see, that everybody's all talking about space debris and, and satellites and things like that. But space is a really big place, right? A hundred thousand airplanes take off every day. Billions of cars operate on one at one altitude, zero, right? <laughs> and they intersect with each other. They're called intersections. And they and we have traffic lights. And if you can put a billion cars in one plane, you can manage quite a large number of objects in Earth orbit. And so I have this vision of that beautiful blue marble, above the atmosphere, there's this little bubble. And it's an intelligent silicon bubble that maybe the energy from the the light from the sun hits the earth on one side of the planet. We beam energy around and then back down to the other side of the planet. We solve the energy crisis, right? Because there's so much energy that we get from the sun and we could efficiently harvest it. These little things could spread out a couple of atoms thick and they could reflect energy back before it even makes it into our atmosphere, changing the albedo of the planet, we could manage the temperature at a global scale. They're sensing the temperature of the ocean. They're sensing wind speeds. They're sensing CO2, methane emissions. They're connecting every device we have. All the billions of cars that need their software updates, they're connecting to these things, right? So if you think about what a shimmering layer of intelligence could do to create a healthier planet, we could allow the sun to hit the ocean in certain areas after we have near perfect understanding of weather patterns to create rain and remove drought and famine and there's so many opportunities if an asteroid starts heading towards the earth they could cluster together and we could break them up break up the asteroid before it hits the ground i mean you can imagine all sorts of, of interesting scenarios where layers of these things could create a much healthier much more well intelligently managed planet and and the earth is itself is an organism the atmosphere itself the ozone layer protects us from ultraviolet radiation natural phenomenon are already at work here. And if we think about opportunities, is that one company? You don't want Astra doing that alone. I mean, you could call that the astrosphere, right? But no one country would let one company control that. So I don't think it's a monopoly. And I think that you can have a service like Starlink that is a great service, but a platform like that's more like the internet. And then we get back to it's a platform. And the internet wouldn't have existed if there was only AOL. If it was one company in one proprietary platform, that would fail. Because if it got too big, it would be broken up. It would be like Bell, right? And we'd have baby Bells. You'd have baby Elons. You don't want it to be a monopoly. You actually want it to be a platform. You want the kinds of things that happened in the early days of the internet to occur here. You want ICANN to say, well, we're going to let countries delegate control over certain... You don't want collisions in space. You don't want collisions on the internet. No two... Satellites can be in the same orbit. You know, you can't have two IP addresses for one host. So I think things like HTTP and HTML and TCPIP, if you can extrapolate how you could manage the finite singular resource that is space, you can start to think about a framework where you could have a multi-stakeholder, multinational. Right now we have our militaries organize this stuff, right? We have NORAD. You register your satellite. We have Russia and China and the US using this finite resource rather bluntly as a thing that they can control But if we could think about it much more like the Internet and we could think about what standards and what protocols could we use to allow a real growth of opportunity and move human economic activity up into low Earth orbit, just like we've moved human economic activity to the Internet, that's a beautiful future is very different than what you hear people talk about today. I think that's the platform Aster is trying to build, and that's what I'm really inspired by. It's the way you go from the cloud to space. You put the cloud in space, and then you figure out how you can create opportunities for investment. You know, How do we get more capital going into putting more solutions to solve more problems? You look at every one of our customers, they're solving incredible problems. If you look at anything Planet's doing, or anything a lot of these companies are doing, they're companies that I want to support, and I'm trying to build a platform to support here.
1: Chris, we often finish up with just asking our guests, what's inspiring you right now? Is there anything you're reading, podcasts you're listening to, a person that's particularly inspiring to you right now?
2: The thing that inspires me the most right now is the idea that we have here has inspired the people. People like Ben have left Apple after 23 years to go help build this thing. My partner, Kate, has stuck with me during one of the most challenging years with COVID happening. We're all having to come in and and work 12 hour days for the past year and a half. It is more so than any experience I've ever had in my life brought together the most incredible people I've ever had the opportunity to kind of be surrounded by at home, at work, everywhere. Life is about people, it's about learning. And the more something you're working on can bring that not only to you personally, but bring that together good things happen and and there's a lot of joy and happiness in that
1: chris thanks so much for being on the design better podcast
2: thank you guys appreciate
1: it